This is the East Trauma Cast. On behalf of East, we'd like to say thank you to Hemanetics for their generous and unrestricted educational grant for the Online Education Committee and TraumaCast. Good afternoon. I'm Lauren Dudas, your host, a trauma and acute care surgeon out of West Virginia University. You all don't know, but this is actually our third attempt to record our rural trauma cast today. We've encountered many of the same issues we'll discuss later, such as issues with telecommunication, transportation, emergency cases, but I'm very excited to talk about rural trauma with some of our non-level one trauma providers. We have a guest moderator today. Lucy, tell us a little bit about yourself and where you practice. Sure. I'm Lucy Rungvorovat. I'm a trauma and acute care surgeon at a level one trauma center in New Haven, Connecticut, Yale New Haven Hospital, affiliated with the Yale School of Medicine. Next, we have a lineup of guests from multiple trauma centers. Please introduce yourself and describe your trauma center. You'll hear one of our well-known hosts present today as one of our invited guests. Carrie, why don't you start? Hey, everybody. It's Carrie Valdez. I'm an acute care surgeon in Western Michigan. My first position out of training was at a level two trauma center. Uh, on the eastern side of the state, kind of the northeastern part of Michigan. And then I'm currently working as a level four trauma center, kind of one of the uh, catch-all hospitals for the region that's north of our level one center by about an hour. Yeah, I'm Eric Schaefer. I'm a general surgeon uh, in private practice working at a critical access hospital, 25 beds in western Michigan. Uh, we are a level four trauma center. J.R. Taylor, I'm an acute care surgeon at Jefferson Regional Medical Center in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. I did my general surgery residency at University of Kentucky and my trauma fellowship at Memorial Hermann in Houston. It worked extensively at academic level one centers, but our hospital now is a uh, state level three trauma center. Having trained at level one centers, what was it that drew you to do more rural trauma? And if you had any advice for other people who are following along a like trauma and surgical critical care track, what could you say are some of the largest benefits you found being a trauma surgeon at a smaller center? You know, I, I am unique in that I'm the first true acute care surgeon at our institution. We have subsequently hired on one more. Leanna is her name. She's going to come down and work and we're going to, you know, create a, a true acute care surgery at a rotation at our hospital. But I will tell you, having trained, you know, did my residency at Kentucky and do my fellowship in Houston, you know, I was very well trained and I was trained to be able to do everything. I was trained to be able to do vascular surgery above the elbow. I was trained to be able to do vascular surgery above the knee for, for any sort of traumatic injury. Also, in, when it comes to all the ICU stuff, I mean, you know, we, we were doing everything except for, you know, the, the cardiac casts and, and things like that. And so I think having that very good, intense uh, training allows me to come down here especially I've seen it with, with respect to COVID when these patients aren't going to get transferred. You've got to be able to manage the cardiac issues. You know, you've got to be able to manage all of the issues and, and having had experience, you know, with these things have been trained very well for it. I think you always, you know, in the end, a lot in a, in a more rural center now, um, I get to do whatever it is that I want. You know, I, I joked that you know, I did a lung cancer uh, resection with one of my partners. And I was like, this is the first time I've been in the chest and had to be slow in like the, the last 12 months. But I think getting a, a really good baseline of training, uh, being comfortable doing a very broad spectrum of things will allow you to go to one of these hospitals. And I think you can be a resource for that hospital because, you know, on the weekends, we would sometimes uh, transfer patients that need advanced endoscopy stuff. But, you know, in, in my training, I was comfortable doing these. And so we were able to not have to send these people down the, down the street to get these higher level of care. 
And Eric, you said you trained uh, in an urban center and then you your first job is, is up north, yeah? Yeah, yeah, this is the what, only... What drew you to the, what did you call it, the, the town that nobody's passing through, you're <laughs> lost or trying to get there? Yeah, uh, no, it, for me, being in a rural practice kind of goes back even further. I was a paramedic in a tiny little town. We worked out of the ER and did transfers where there was no radio reception let alone cell phone reception so everything was protocolized you get used to working on your own making those decisions and then you know i did my intern year at a small hospital where as an intern i was the only uh, physician in-house covering 150 beds you know my first night on call you know reported to the hospitalist that kind of ran the service and uh, introduced myself and his response to me was well uh, good luck don't kill anybody and don't call me hey, you know and that just kind of summarized you know my entire intern year and then and then doing my general surgery training in Grand Rapids and that area all of it was just all about gaining as much experience as possible and, and to what JR said the the key to being in a rural area is just being ready to do those things that you haven't done in a long time you know, I mentioned earlier you know there's a you had a uh, super celiac gunshot wound, you know, and there I am brand new attending, doing a thoracotomy, just trying to get this guy to stop bleeding. And, you know, I'll see that maybe once again in my entire career, not regularly operating on the chest. And, and so you've just kind of got to always be ready to do everything that was ever put into your tool bag, no matter how dusty those tools might be, just remembering the the basic anatomy, the basic steps, and and all of it just trying to get to that point where you're able to stabilize that patient, trying to do the best thing for them. Tell us a little bit more about your trauma systems. Are they well established for transfers? If you need to go to a higher level of care, do you have to shop around? What is the regional availability? I can start with that. This is Eric. We have a fantastic system, part of a larger uh, overall healthcare system in Western Michigan. And we have one 1-800 number that we call, uh, that we call the transfer center. And they are able to coordinate everything that we need from transport to speaking to the on-call trauma surgeon, to getting the patient the quickest and best care that they possibly can. They'll call helicopters for us if we need it. Been a very user-friendly and, and very beneficial for our patients. Since Eric and I are both in the same hospital system right now, I'm going to speak more of my experience when I was at a level two in a different hospital system to hopefully give a couple different perspectives. In Saginaw, Michigan, it was a level two trauma center that, quote unquote, and we hear this a lot at our level twos, functions just like a level one. After working a level one and training a level one, it's not quite always true. We did have the majority of coverage that you would need. However, we did not have any residents or fellows. So it was a trauma surgeon and then um, whatever, um, either first assist or scrub tech was on call that night to help us in the operating room. In the emergency department, we had emergency room residents um, who are very interested in trauma and very, very good at what they do, as well as emergency room attendings. Most of the trauma surgeons would take call from home and then come in when the trauma pager went off or in the summertime when we were much busier, we would stay in-house. Maybe think of Michigan being like a, a mitten or glove. Saginaw is kind of just above the crack of the thumb, uh, eastern side. And then we would cover the majority of all patients in the thumb of Michigan and then the northern eastern half of the lower part of the state. Um, so it's quite a huge encapsulation area. Our um, city had about 65,000 people and we covered about 400,000 people um, per trauma in our regional coverage. As for moving patients out of our hospital, we were not part of a larger system. And if you can think of Michigan from the base of the, the wrist 
of the thumb. If anyone knows where Cedar Point is in Toledo, if you take I-75 straight up to Mackinac Island at the top of Michigan, it's considered the I-75 corridor. And it's pretty much Detroit, Pontiac, Flint, Michigan, and then Saginaw. And that entire area is kind of ringed with the um, trauma centers because that's where we have most of the knife and gun club activity um, that got much worse um, with increased drug use and increased gun violence after the car industry kind of toppled at the end of the 1990s. So Saginaw was at the top of that column of cities and we would just call south. You just keep calling down I-75 until you can find a trauma center that can either take the patient, they have a bed available or that they have the specialty available that we need. Um, if one of the hospitals along 75 wasn't available, then we'd look more center of the state and um, call over to University of Michigan um, to see if, if they had beds available as well. What type of injury patterns are you managing now that you haven't seen in the past? And have you noticed any difference in the management since COVID when all hospital systems have really been experiencing some constraints on patient volume? I think our injury patterns have really stayed pretty steady. Uh, you know, in a rural area, a lot of what we see are blunt trauma, a lot of car accidents. Um, we have a very large Amish population in our community. Uh, so usually annually, we'll see a pretty bad car versus buggy accident or car versus bicyclist accident on the highway. Um, we do get some penetrating trauma. Uh, it seems like every time we have a general surgeon start, at least in the first year, they end up with a gunshot wound of some kind, um, which at a level four trauma center, we have 18 beds in our ER. So, you know, we have pretty fairly busy ER, but still that kind of raises a lot of uh, feathers uh, when you have a gunshot wound coming into a, a level four trauma center. Um, our penetrating trauma otherwise is a lot of cuts and falls and things like that that um, are related to other issues and not necessarily uh, violence. Since COVID, you know, like I mentioned, we're part of a larger system and, and that system has been incredibly generous. Uh, our level one trauma center is very generous with their time and their availability. We can tell that they're getting stressed and sending them, you know, a routine trauma that really probably doesn't need the benefit of having all of those specialties at a level one is not in their best interest. It's not in the patient's best interest. And so we try to manage those as best as we can locally, but there's sometimes that there's just stuff that we can't provide for them. But COVID hasn't changed that a whole lot. We have a, a fantastic working relationship with our trauma centers, our trauma surgeons downtown. And I'll speak to some of that. Eric, thank you for the compliments. I worked with the trauma team downtown at the Level 1 Center during 2020. Injury pattern. So it, initially, when um, everything was essentially shut down last February for a few months, certainly our you know high-speed motor vehicle collisions decreased quite a bit. Bicyclists struck by cars decreased quite a bit. And, and that was just a practical sense that we didn't have as many cars on the road. As the summer progressed and the fall progressed, you know, then the trauma patterns became much more similar that we're used to seeing in the summertime, um, the boating injuries, the outdoor activities. And then in the fall, we've joked around about that before that the fall in Michigan is considered men falling from high heights uh, season because they like to fall off of deer blinds and roofs and anything else they can, they can climb in the fall uh, seems to be something that, that they like to do as, as they do in many Northern states. And, and Eric is right. There was a tremendous amount of pressure to take care of patients safely and appropriately while also managing the resources. We were very lucky in our system that the trauma uh, medical director and assistant medical director had the foresight well prior to COVID to start rolling out the big guidelines at some select hospitals within our system to see what traumatic brain injured patients could we keep at the outside hospitals with very close follow-up and very, very specific algorithm as to who to keep and who to ship. And that helped relieve some of the stress. 
as well as working very closely with our orthopedic surgeons, our facial fracture surgeons, whether that was ENT or plastics, and our neurosurgeons for what kind of patients have injuries that even if we transfer them are going to end up being discharged and then follow up as an outpatient. Can we skip the transfer and just have them follow up? And what that required was a lot of reliance on the level uh, two, three, and four centers to do an appropriate trauma workup. And then at the level one center, that conversation we have is to make sure that the appropriate workup has been done and it's thorough so that this patient is safe to be discharged from one of the regional centers and not necessarily need to transfer down to the level one center. I think that that is one thing that may be a, um, a good practice pattern that will come out of the pandemic over the past 18 months is that we're starting to learn how to manage resources um, in a little bit more of an efficient manner. And then hopefully for some patients, a little bit better for them as well. Decreased expense, decreased time in the hospital, decreased travel time, and anything that we can keep locally safely. I think we've learned and accelerated that process quite a bit in the past year and a half. And Arkansas, we're very lucky. You know, we have a, an integrated coordinated trauma system. So when it comes to traumatically injured patients at, at our facility, there's uh, myself as the acute care surgeon, three orthopedic surgeons, but we don't have neurosurgery coverage. We don't have spine coverage. We don't have face coverage. If, if it's not something that, and, you know, I pick up the phone and call the orthopedic surgeon, I'll call and say, hey, they have, a, you know, X, Y, and Z, or are, you, or are you comfortable taking care of this? Otherwise, we have to ship a lot of things. We will We will stabilize them. But that really hasn't changed much since COVID because we haven't expanded much of our practices at all. The state-run system has done a very good job at uh, keeping the flow of the trauma patients to the appropriate facilities where they can get the help, be it you know, to the academic uh, trauma center in Little Rock, uh, which is 50 miles away, or to the uh, private practice trauma centers that are up the road. Carrie, you brought up an interesting point about triaging and how often do you use telemedicine and trauma in communication with the level one centers? My experience at the level one last year and the regional that I'm at currently, um, we don't have an established uh, telemed system set up yet. I don't know, Eric, if you've had any different experiences recently. Not for trauma specifically. We uh, COVID, that is one thing that changes. We did really expand our general use of telemedicine. There were several barriers that we were encountering initially as far as having certain specialties, consulting, things like cardiology, and especially our EICU uh, has significantly expanded. That was primarily for COVID patients that were in our ICU and on ventilators. Uh, so that was a fantastic boon. Um, when it comes to trauma patients specifically, we really haven't seen a whole lot of that. I think it's because we have three general surgeons that trade call. And when we do admit a trauma patient, it's typically something that we feel that we have the resources to manage throughout their hospitalization. You know, so it's more, most frequently would be rib fractures and, um, those kinds of patients. If we happen to have our orthopedic surgeon on call and he's able to manage a fracture, then, then that's even better for the patient, better to treat them locally, as opposed to transferring them for what was already mentioned. Is, is really pretty routine trauma care. So, but we have not really taken advantage of those telemedicine services, although I do think that they would be available if we needed them, uh, but primarily more for an ICU. When you're thinking about transferring these patients, you know, there's been some data that's come out in the past regarding repetitive imaging and that contributing to increased costs for these patients who are transferred. Just curious about how that factors into your algorithm and also what's the decision burden on you guys as for, you know, potentially transferring a patient and having to utilize some pretty expensive transport methods or, you know, taking someone potentially several hours away from family and things like that. 
Yeah, Lucy, those are all very big considerations that we take into account all the time. Uh, Our ultimate decision when we're deciding whether or not that we want or need to transfer somebody really comes down to what resources we have locally. We have a pretty extensive list of resources, even for a critical access hospital, but it's pretty easy to exceed those resources. Um, You know, when you've got somebody that's multiply injured, fairly critically ill, and they're going to need ICU care, you know, as a general surgeon on call, I'm the ICU doctor too. And, and, you know, we already mentioned not having residents and things, you know, so when they're adjusting vent settings and drips and those kinds of things, I'm answering those calls. And that's, those are my calls all week long, all night long. And so a lot of it is, is just resource management of what we have available. And then as, as you very well know, these patients can go south very quickly with very little warning. And so if there's any kind of an indication that that may be that kind of a patient, your little tiny blip of a head bleed on somebody on Eloquist, I'm probably not going to have anything bad happen to it. But gosh, if if something does, we're an hour away after they already leave the building. I mean, it's an hour door to door, you know, then getting the transport there. And so just trying to anticipate is really the biggest thing and making those decisions of when to treat it. We're very motivated to take care of our patients locally. Um, you know, Grand Rapids for most of our patients is a dirty word and, and they don't want to go down there. We're in a community that it's not on the way to anywhere. And that's the way people like it. You're either really lost or you were intentionally coming to our town. And so that's, the mentality of the people. And and so when you tell them, you know, I'm sorry, we didn't need to take you to send you to Grand Rapids. And there's usually a lot of, do you have to, is that really the best thing that we can do? And so on and so forth. So our biggest decision just comes down to what resources we have and what is going to be the best outcome for that patient. And just to put in a small plug for Grand Rapids, it's a lovely city. It's just um, not, it's not as conducive as a small town for just parking, uh, you know, 20 yards from the front door. It's a, it's a little more, more of a, a busy downtown center. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, yeah, that's a hundred percent. You know, I trained in Grand Rapids and, and yeah. in that area and, and I love the, love the area. Uh, but you know, even I, I'm no, no longer accustomed to driving in an urban area. And so I, tend to kind of agree with, you know, it's, it's intimidating going downtown to the big trauma center when, you know, your worst traffic jam is getting stuck behind the feed truck in the morning. <laughs> and there's nothing more frustrating, frankly, on everyone's side than you make the trip down. And like we spoke about on, on the first trauma cast, it may take an EMS driver out of Eric's area. And so they have to coordinate that. So maybe the patient's waiting up at Eric's hospital, waits a couple of hours gets their hour-long drive down, gets into our ER, gets reevaluated, only to be told that they can go home. We have to be able to do a better job of making that decision if we can before any of that transfer happens. To go back to your question, Lucy, about imaging and repeat imaging. So when I was at the level two, we took in a lot of patients in the regional area. And so we had the, the joy of experiencing patients who arrived with no imaging and were not connected to that hospital system. So I can't see any pictures. So we were pretty crazy about making sure that patients had imaging on some kind of disc, whether we had to duct tape it to their chest to get it before they leave our hospital, because we also were not part of a system where they could see our imaging. There's a little bit of sharing here and there with like a magical password that always seems to cause confusion every time we try to figure out who we share images with and who we don't share images with. But overall, I'd say my experience has been if you're at a smaller hospital or or a, a regional hospital and you're transferring for any reason, make sure the imaging goes with the patient. Somebody important has to be in charge. It can't be 15 people are gonna make sure that so-and-so is told to get the imaging. It has to be someone who, who cares the most, sees that disc, go with the patient, 
handoff directly to the person taking the patient and then the patient leaves. I, if the patients are coherent, I often hand that packet to the patient and say, don't let go of this until you hand it to somebody at the next hospital. On the flip side, if you're receiving and you can't get those images sorted out and figured out within about 10 to 15 minutes, just repeat it. It is not worth having your patient take an hour and a half, two hours, three hours, where you're trying to figure out the picture. It definitely sounds like at the end of the day, the patient uh, takes priority in whatever resources we need to use. So as far as transferring patients, it sounds like your resources are going to fluctuate based on what providers you have around. How often do you have a situation where the patient arrives and the appropriate orthopedic surgeon or subspecialist is available, and then that person is no longer around and you have to transfer institutions? Or is that something that you consider ahead of time that, you know, this person's only going to be here for another three days and we need to transfer the patient because we won't have the resources available to care for them by the end of their hospital stay? I think for us in Arkansas, since there's only three orthopedic surgeons at the hospital I work at, I have a pretty good relationship with them where we can discuss, hey, what are you comfortable taking care of? And then, you know, with past experience, you know, okay, maybe they'll want to do this or I'll take a picture of it and send it to them and say, hey, I'm here. This is what we have. If you're comfortable taking care of this, I can do all the other stuff. And I think having that discussion up front prevents what you're talking about and somebody staying in the hospital for a couple of days and, and going back and forth as to whether or not you'll have the appropriate coverage. So I think as with everything, good communication up front in a timely fashion kind of keeps you from having these issues. I would echo what JR said. I, you know, we have one orthopedic surgeon and he covers 10 days a month, And but he's also very accustomed to be in that traditional practice where if he's got somebody in the hospital, he's still going to round on whether he's on call or not. And so it's, we have great communication. We all have each other's cell phones and it's not unusual for three or four text messages to fly back and forth between us, the hospitalist service, the orthopedic service to say, hey, what's going to be the best for this patient? Can we manage everything that they've got going on here? But again, it falls back to having a robust uh, referral system. If things are going well and we're keeping them here, then all of a sudden if things change, there's no questions asked. And and our trauma surgeons are there to support us and and they have provided some, hey, let's try this first or um, you know this suggestion or that suggestion. But when it comes down to it, as I think has been mentioned on previous podcasts, is they're not going to say no. They're going to take care of the patient and, and that's what comes, that's their primary goal. What is your blood availability at your institutions? And then also, I'm interested to hear what your thoughts are on TXA. Yeah, you know, I actually had to ask this question because I didn't know what our blood availability was. So our lab manager was very nice and responding. And basically, we've got six units of uncross-matched blood in our hospital, uh, which hopefully gets us to a point where we can get cross-matched. But even then, we've only got 22 units total. And so if you've got somebody that's exsanguinating, you're going to exhaust that pretty quickly. We have 15 units of FFP. And if we want to give cryo, then we get to wait an hour while it gets shipped up from Grand Rapids. So, you know, we've kind of been dinged on not giving a one-to-one-to-one resuscitation and and that'd be great, but we don't have it. But the thing is we don't give it often enough to turn it over quickly enough. And then the last thing you'd want to do is to waste uh, such a precious resource as blood. And so, you know, we're pretty limited on the amount of blood that we have. We've worked very hard since I've started here on really sealing up our mass transfusion protocols. There are some big hiccups. Six months into my practice and had a gunshot wound uh, with an injury to the supraceliac aorta. And, you know, so it was just exsanguinating and they were fighting me on releasing uncross-matched blood. And so we've 
tune that up to a point where, you know, there's no question. We say we need blood and they just show up into the ER with the blood. And so those kinds of learning things are absolutely critical, no matter what level of trauma center you are and being able to critically evaluate what's going right and what's going wrong uh, and fixing those things, being willing to have the, the ability to fix those things. You know, as far as TXA goes, we routinely give it. And I think really what it comes down to is that we don't have a whole lot of blood. And so anything that we can do to stop the bleeding, I think is going to buy that patient that little bit of extra time. I think, Eric, you make a, a great point. I'm just down the road from Eric right now to level four this weekend covering. We have two units of blood. That's it. There's no cryo. There's no FFP. There's no platelet. So there's two. And we also cover um, obstetrics. And so majority of the blood will go to obstetrics before it's going to a trauma patient or an acute care surgery patient. So if somebody comes into this hospital and they are having hemorrhage to the point that I'm considering TXA, the answer would be get on the phone with your trauma surgeon, wherever you're going to be sending this patient, call the person who's going to save your ass, right? Because the centers that are the level ones, they're keeping up on the research. They have their own data. They're following it very closely. And frankly, the level three, level four centers aren't seeing hemorrhagic shock frequently enough that they are up to speed on the most recent information. And every trauma system is different. And every trauma system has their own set of hardcore beliefs based on the data and the facts as they interpret them and, and as their experience dictates as well as how long it takes the patient to get there. If I get the patient there in 15, 20 minutes, great. If it's going to be eight hours, that may be a different story. And then like Eric said, if all I have is those two units and then you know some dust to rub on the wound, they're probably going to want me to give TXA. Right? If I can send them with a cooler full of blood and blood products one-to-one, maybe it's okay just to send them at a one-to-one ratio. But the person to be talking to is the trauma surgeon who's going to be accepting that patient. They're going to give you the best advice. Carrie, what's the replacement time for those units? You know, if you know that OB has utilized those blood products already, and then you're expecting maybe you get a patch in that someone's coming in or someone's turning up and they have a splenic injury or something like that, how quickly does that get replenished? This would be speaking from my acute care surgery experience up here, but it's, but OB does not often have emergencies. They're usually surgeries that they anticipate they're going to need it. And so they'll already call the Red Cross regionally and start currying blood up. Or as soon as one gets ordered, when I've ordered blood for the acute care surgery patients, I know that they've already called the courier. And it's the same courier going up and down 131 that, that's going over to Eric's place. I'll drop some cryo off at Eric. He'll drop a unit of blood off with me. And they just kind of circulate around. There's 14 hospitals on the western half of the state. And so the system's pretty good. But if someone gets shot outside the hospital and they're looking at needing 20 units, I might as well just hold pressure and, and send them south because we just rather than wait for them to drive up an hour to get to where we're at, if that makes sense. You know, we're unique uh, in that we're the only trauma center state of Arkansas that has low titer whole blood. We're coming on a year of having it back in August. We started doing that and I've seen it make a difference. We also have uh, four and four uh, in our blood bank. But we've gone away from giving that. We'll give uh, the low titer O whole blood. Now, our release criteria is not nearly as academic as the other places that I've been, right? I mean, sometimes when you're talking about shock index and ABC score, they kind of look at you like you're crazy. But, you know, if you have an unfortunately high amount of uh, penetrating trauma. And so we're giving low titer O whole blood from the beginning. We get about uh, four units every Thursday that are shipped down to us. And so we're, we're unique in that fact. And I've seen a difference. We've used it for traumas. We've used it for cardiac interventional procedures gone awry with retroperitoneal hematomas. And so it's actually been very helpful. To go to the TXA piece, I am way more uh, liberal about giving it now than I was in any academic center. You know, having been in Houston, we used to only give it based on the tag if they needed it, based upon the lysis. 
but here I'll, I'll give two grams of TXA. You know, if the shock index is above one, ABC score above two, I'll, I'll just go ahead and give two grams of TXA. And, and that's a relationship I have with our CRNAs too. They'll know if we're bleeding in the operating room, they'll just go ahead and give it still as long as we're within three hours. And as a plug, if you haven't listened to our former trauma cast about cold blood, TXA, some blood product information, you can check that out. Sherry, you mentioned the CRNAs. Can you talk a little bit about airway management and anesthesia availability at your places? So for us, we are staffed uh, fully by CRNAs. We have one anesthesiologist who comes down only one week out of the month. Our CRNAs are very experienced. They were all ICU nurses. They are in-house. We have two of them that are always there. One is usually for OB and one is for any emergency surgery. Uh, When it comes to airway issues, obviously, we have a discussion if it's an emergency between the ER and the CRNAs. Our ER provider's experience varies. And so if it's going to be difficult uh, and I'm down there, I'll have the CRNAs with me. And that really helps. There are some people who are hesitant about it. I think with the amount of experience they have, they do the job just as well. And, you know, the reality is if you were deploying with the military team, you'd have a CRNA anyway. You wouldn't have an anesthesiologist. So they do a great job. Yeah, I would echo what JR said. We have all CRNAs, and with the exception of two who happen to live in town, they're in the hospital the whole time that they're on call, and uh, they're very available. Um, you know, OB occupies a fair amount of their time, but, um, you know, if there's a difficult airway issue, they're the first call that the ER makes, and so it's been great having them. So if the CRNAs are maybe busy with OB or anything, does that affect your ability to take trauma patients or acute care patients to the operating room? We have two in-house. So so one is dedicated all time uh, for OB. And so we always have one that's floating around, you know, like on a Saturday and Sunday, if we're doing emergency cases and there's an OB case going on, then obviously they're both. So we go on uh, limited access at that point in time. But that CRNA is dedicated for all the emergencies and all the traumas. And they've been way more than helpful when it comes to, you know, in the COVID scenarios with emergency airways and intubating those patients. I would say we have the same classic battle that they have at any facility where we're arguing about who's going to bump whom. Fortunately, at least in my experience, since I've been here, it's never completely cross, but there is that opportunity for it because we do only have one CRNA on, we do only have one OR crew on. And if they're tied up in a C-section, then yeah, I'm managing that patient in the ER. But again, you know, the focus in a level four center is primarily in that critically ill of a patient is going to be stabilization to within the capabilities of that facility and then getting them to the most appropriate care at the closest facility. And if I don't have an OR available and won't for the next you know 90 minutes because they just opened on the C-section, then the most appropriate care for that patient is to stabilize them to the best of our ability and then get them to the nearest trauma center. Fortunately, that hasn't come up because, you know, we just have that kind of uh, luck, I guess, but there certainly is is that opportunity for that to come up and it's been discussed. And I think one thing to know is the communication as well as just know your resources. Sleeping in the call room and not realizing what's going on within the hospital will only hurt you when something comes in. So just when you're talking to the the hospital supervisor who's organizing cases and you're going to add on that appy, just ask, you know, what's going on? What's going on in OB? You guys got cases going? Who's around? When you go down to the ER to see, you know, the abscess that you got to Lance, just ask, how how are things, how busy is it? How busy is the board? Does everybody look like they're full or do they have availability? My favorite story, and this is an acute care story, not necessarily a trauma story. In fellowship, we would cover the ICU at this teeny, teeny, tiny hospital an hour and a half south of uh, Baltimore. And there'd be maybe five or six ICU players and then an ER. And I got called by the ER attending who had just graduated three or four months prior 
So she's essentially a PGY4 and she sounded desperate. She's like, you please just come down here and help me. And I came down to the ER and I said, what do you need? She says, just go to room 35. And 35 was having a legit STEMI, like tombstoning, gray, sweaty, looked horrible. And I had always trained where you hit the big red button on the wall and the cath lab swoops in and takes them to this magical place. And then they end up in the ICU a few hours later and they look great. There is no cath lab. There is no place for these patients to go. And this patient couldn't travel up to Baltimore because of the weather. And so we couldn't fly. We're waiting for a rig to get down, getting through the snowstorm. And this ER attending said, can you just watch that guy in room 35 and I'll take care of the rest of the ER. And I, and I looked around and realized that she was managing 18, 20 other patients besides this guy who was critically ill and dying in front of her. So just knowing your resources can be helpful. The fact that she called me, the only other attending in the building, was the smartest thing she could have done and the best thing she could have done for that patient just to help relieve her so she can take care of everybody in, in the building. Um, so the same goes with, with when traumas come in. Is there an ICU attending? Is there an OB? OB attendings are excellent surgeons. They may not have taken out a, spl a spleen, but they certainly know how to manage bleeding and suction and retraction and, and how to cut knots and tie suture. And so just know who's around that can help you because it doesn't necessarily have to be what you trained with or what you're used to. So if you do decide to transfer a patient, what kind of follow-up do you get from the transfer facility and how do you use that to adapt the next patient care? So for us, that's really the main reason I reached out to Carrie after the first episode of the Rural Trauma Cast was, I think it'd be fantastic to have better follow-up. I think part of becoming a surgeon is just being driven for that constant improvement. And we know that we don't have all of the answers out in the rural space, and there's always going to be something that we can improve upon, but nobody wants to be known as that saint elsewheres. You know, everybody wants to be the best that they possibly can and getting that feedback from people who that's what they do. That's their gig is trauma surgery um, to, to help to improve even just a little bit would be fantastic. And, and how to design that kind of a program, I don't know. But, you know, it starts just with open conversation and just knowing that everybody is there with the same goal in mind of taking care of that patient and being able to take care of the next patient because there's going to be a next patient. When I was in uh, Saginaw, East Michigan, the level two, all of our pediatric patients that required transfer would transfer to the University of Michigan. And part of our, in our uh, American College of Surgeons accreditation for pediatrics was that we had to have monthly M&M style conferences to discuss cases. And so once a month on a Wednesday morning, we would do like a teleconference, which at the time, this was a couple of years ago, seemed like such a novel idea, but now the idea of, of Zooming is, is, is very easy to do, but we would do a teleconference and we'd get together in a conference room and we'd look at the cases that were significant that we transferred. We'd talk about what we could have done better. And then we would also get the follow-up on how those patients were doing. And that was really important to get the follow-up on the things that we could improve and then also get the follow-up on things that went well and then how the, uh, the, the child was doing. Through the Arkansas trauma system, we have a, a good way of getting feedback for mechanisms and reasons for transfer and things like that. But I don't think we have a dedicated system for discussing, oh, what happened you know, to Mr. Smith who had you know, a flail chest and a brain bleed. Did he get any better? Or did he get any worse? For us, when we transfer kids, we're lucky there's a, there's just a small group at the children's hospital who takes care of them. So I can text them and try and get an idea as far as that goes. But a dedicated system for feedback, which like you're saying, Carrie, in the world of Zoom nowadays, it should be easy where you just say, hey, this is what's going on. Uh, this is what we did. Hey, you did this right. Because we've you know, in, in our training and fellowship and, and previous jobs, we've been on the other end where you ask that question of, you know, well, well what happened? 
you know, we could, what we could have done X, Y, and Z better. Why did you, you know, why did you not get the CTA of the head and neck, you know, that, things like that. And so I think now with the technology and it being more integrated in, uh, into our lives, it should make it easier. But the idea of a monthly case feedback, you know, could be run for every level two, three trauma center, you know, coordinated by a state. And if any of our uh, audience is curious how the sausage is made here in TraumaCast world, we are all currently on Zoom. So we can see each other and talk to each other. And then we record it to an uh, audio for you. So yeah, this is something that we're all pretty familiar with now. And, you know, if you're fresh out of training and you're at a center and you want to think of how to improve your center, look around and see if there is this feedback system. It's, it's pretty straightforward to set up and it would be great to, to get that feedback, both good and bad, um, to help the patient uh, across the entire region. What about after these patients might be discharged from a larger facility and they go back to the rural setting? Do they tend to follow up back at the subspecialist office in the bigger city that they were referred to? Or do they end up showing up to your offices or clinics and then that's how you get your feedback? Oh, this is what happened to you. And then do the patients have what they need in terms of aftercare, you know, VNA and physical therapy and things like that as an outpatient? From my experience, once they go and transfer to a higher level of care, usually the majority of the follow-up is done there, uh, unless it's something that, you know, someone calls me and says, you know, we did X, Y, and Z, are you okay with following up on this? I, you know, I don't have a problem doing that at all with the, uh, with the amount of clinic that I do, but, uh, but outside of the majority of the time, 95% of the time, it's usually followed up with the subspecialist at the, at the level they went through uh, for us. Yeah, I would echo what JR said. Um, you know, I've had several patients that you know, I did a stabilizing splenectomy on and would have my office reach out to schedule a follow-up once they got discharged just so I could kind of follow their post-operative course. Never saw the patient again. They, you know, but would check in on them and, and see, well, they'd followed up with the trauma center downtown, even though they didn't do the actual operation. But I've had a few and in, in the one of the fun things about being in a small community is that I've been here long enough that I'll have people that will ask if they can come and follow up with me just because they have some sort of a relationship with me outside of medicine. You know, I operated on their uncle or something like that, and they would rather not drive for all those follow-up appointments. But, you know, to, to JR and to Lucy's point, there, there's a lot of things that we just don't have a whole lot of access to. We have some physical therapy, we have some occupational therapy locally. But the nice thing is, that, you know, having trained uh, in Grand Rapids and done my trauma training there is they have done a fantastic job of coming up with these robust systems to ensure that people have that outpatient follow-up with nursing, with physical therapy, with you know rehab centers and those kinds of things. And, and there's such a, a smooth running machine that trying to throw those wrenches in it of just like, well, we want them to do this, but let's have them do it someplace that we've never coordinated with before. Um, and that can just create all kinds of hiccups and things. And so to a certain point, I don't like to interrupt that, but it would be nice to follow up on the patients that you do operate on, but uh, certainly understand the limitations to that as well. I think at the level two, we took a little bit different approach rather than having everyone follow up with us, um, like we do on the west side of the state. Um, we intentionally would have these patients go back to primary care if they could, if it was appropriate. So, you know, all lacerations, all suture removals, it all went to the primary care physician. Splenectomies usually would follow up with us for the post-operative exploratory laparotomy, like incision check and things like that. But like the splenic vaccines and making sure they stay on schedule moving forward, that would all be followed up with their primary care. And there's a really good relationship back and forth. But the responsibility on the, the trauma surgeons then and that team is to make sure there is a very detailed discharge summary 
that either the primary physicians or primary surgeons can see, or it needs to be copied and given to the patient and, and make it very clear to the patient. This is very, very important that you keep and take it to your doctor so they know what happened. As long as the communication and key is open for straightforward things, I think it is okay to keep the patient's as local as possible, they don't need to drive two and a half hours for me to take out you know, some staples from a, a lack repair. For an appreciation of how your schedule might be, can you tell us what it's like to be you know, the surgeon on call for trauma at your center? My schedule is pretty regimented. Um, you know, I've got a full-time outpatient practice. You know, I do a full day of endoscopy a week, do two full days in the office and a full day in the OR. And then I've got a day of just kind of flex time. Uh, we take call a week at a time. And so between myself and my two partners, so a total of three of us, and we just were on call one and three. The nice thing about doing it a week at a time is you may get destroyed for that whole week, but uh, you know, at least you've got two weeks to look forward to being off and kind of recuperating, but you've still got your outpatient responsibilities. So it can be pretty hectic. I mean, there's been times where, you know, you're up doing acute care surgery things all night long, you know, appies and, uh, you know, then that runs into an X lap for free air. And, you know, then you've still got to turn around and do your full day of office the next day. And so it's a very traditional general surgery practice, but I think that that's part of why trainees need to push themselves uh, in their training. It's it's not just to be mean. Building up that kind of resiliency takes time and it takes focus. And it's not something that that you're just going to be able to do your first day of being an attending. You have to have put yourself through those really tough nights of being on call and turning around and still functioning the next day. And so that's our biggest challenges and, and, and kind of goes back to why we ship some things is because our most limited resource, frankly, is us. And so if I'm up all night answering phone calls from the ICU on the patient, uh, and then I've got to turn around and, and give my outpatients my best too. Um, and if I've been up for the last two nights, I'm no longer at my best. <laughs> There's no arguing that. And and so there's times where I'll say, look, I got to ship this patient. Could I manage everything that they have going on? Yes. But can I manage everything that they have going on and still manage what I'm also here to do to take care of the community? And, and that answer sometimes is no. And for me, that sometimes generates a, a transfer that I'm sure that the other end of the phone, although very gracious, says, why are you sending this? This is straightforward. I work uh, anywhere between 12 to 16 days a month. We have three other pulmonologists that cover the ICU. And then I'll rotate through Thursday through a Tuesday morning where I am the general surgeon on call, the trauma surgeon on call, and the ICU doctor on call. And I think those are very busy weekends. I'll still do, you know, a half day at clinic Friday morning and then a half day at clinic Monday morning. I don't have my elective practice isn't as big or as robust maybe as I would like it to be. I am very busy. You know, the, the challenge is finding the time to, like Eric said, do I do this appendectomy at eight o'clock at night, knowing that I have to round on, you know, 18 people in the ICU, or do I put it off and do it at 7 a.m. and get up at five to go through the ICU, make sure nobody's uh, really trying to die overnight and then come back and round, you know, at 11 when you get it done. So I think having an idea about what the acuity of the people in the ICU are, plus, you know, the trauma always throws a variable into it. Inevitably, you know, someone's going to get shot or they're or like Eric said, someone's going to have free air and you're going to be super busy, but, you know, communicating to the charge nurse in the ICU, hey, I'm going to go take a nap. I'll be back in two hours. If you need me, just call me. It can be very busy, but it's fun because, you know, it's, <laughs> I figure I'm the judge, jury, and the executioner on the weekend because I'm doing, there's a GI problem. I do the scopes. If it's general surgery, free air, I do it. You get shot in the belly. I'm your man. Or for prone people up in the ICU because of severe COVID, you know, I'm, I'm up there helping facilitate that. So. Um, it's good. It's fun. It's a challenge, but it can get hectic, especially during the, the, the COVID timeframe. 
exactly what JR said. It's fun. I mean, you get to do everything that you were trained to do as a general surgeon in residency when you're out in the rural area. I don't have to consult colorectal surgery to come and take care of a perforated diverticulitis. I just get to do it if I feel that it's within my capabilities, but then I've got the, that robust system to, if I say this is not within my capabilities, that I don't have to just wing it and can get it to the right person. But it is just an absolutely fun environment to practice in because you do just, you see everything and you get get to manage absolutely anything and everything that you possibly could want to. You got to know what your partners are comfortable with and what they're not comfortable with. There are five other general surgeons. Three of them do elective vascular surgery. So if I have a bad vascular case, I'm calling them in the middle of the night and one of the three of them will come in and help me. I've never had them not answer the phone and be willing to come in uh, and lend a hand. You know, Carrie, you brought up the big criteria. I'm comfortable with big one, no problem at all. You know, here's your Gamma, gamma Kepra, you know, we'll get you a follow-up. We have a neurologist if we, if we really, really needed it, but my other partners are not, you know, if there's, if there's any blood on the brain. And I think those are open and honest discussions you have to have because, you know, when I leave on Tuesday morning and I'm checking those out to someone else, they may not have that experience and say, well, what, you know, what do I do with this? You know, you've seen this a hundred times, but I've only seen this twice. So I think making sure that you're in a system where you really know what your partners are comfortable with, what they're not with it really really pays off you know you can push the limit too you know we've i brought rib plating down there and they're like well we should we should ship all these flails it's like no we can do this and and so getting your partners to come into the case and say oh this really isn't that hard and you know saying hey the next time you see this if you're on call just call me i'll I'll come down and help you i think those are big ways of you know expanding what your hospital can do and especially in in today's environment where transfers are difficult being able to do more and support other partners really helps a lot of our listeners are trainees, and so they may be concerned about leaving the environment they're in and going and being maybe the only surgeon uh, at an institution. But it sounds like, you know, if you find the right support system and you know what your resources are outside of your institution, you can make sure that you're comfortable with whatever comes through the doors. Your first job does not necessarily have to be either at a level one in the warm embrace of the urban full resource center or you're at the end of a dirt road, hanging a shingle, and you're the only surgeon in town for 150 miles, right? There's, there's a lot of variation in between. And, and honestly, if you're well-trained, particularly if you're trained at a busy trauma center, if you're you know, double-boarded general surgery and critical care, and then even if you did the acute care surgery year, trust your training. Like you are ready for these cases. You've seen these cases. You've been doing these cases. When you're interviewing and applying, I think the most crucial thing is just truly ask, what is the support? I mean, JR having surgeons that do vascular to support them is awesome, right? Having a a close trauma center, knowing who's in the building, who can help you, and then asking real questions. What is the schedule? Am I legitimately going to be getting called every few hours for 72 hours on a weekend? Am I taking call for a week, but it's usually one or two calls a night, maybe none, maybe it's busy, right? And ask yourself honestly, like what kind of stamina do you have and what kind of job are you interested in? Because everything, there's a plus and a minus, right? So you can do shift work, or you can do weekend call, you can have lots of residents around, you have no residents around, but but no one system is, is perfect. I think there's a lot of um, pros and cons, goods and evils to both. And then most importantly, when you interview, it's similar to residency, when you interview with your potential partners, check your gut. Do you have a good gut feeling these people are going to be mentors and be supportive and be helpful? Because every single surgeon that's out there in America has had day one. We do 4,000 hours of training a year, right? 80 hours a week times 50 weeks a year, roughly. So 4,000 hours a year times five years. 
That's 20,000 hours of general surgery training before you're granted the ability to be the junior most attending in the building, right? So we've all been there, but you've got a lot of training under your belt. So if you have a gut feeling that these are good surgeons you're joining and you, and you trust the system they have set up, whether it's a level one to a level four, you know, you should embrace the challenges and embrace the fun of it. Go back and read your med school essay. I bet you went into it because you wanted to do this. And it was going to be fun. And we can let all the, the Twitter chatter and, and the hardships of it all kind of just be set aside for a minute and truly just enjoy patient care. And I mean, I loved my, my first job. I absolutely loved it with like the best group you could ever imagine for, for a first job out of training. And they met all these criteria that I was just talking about. So I highly encourage people to do level twos, level threes, level four, I think there's just so much potential for just good surgery and good career uh, in these centers. You guys make it sound pretty fun. It also sounds like communication and knowing who else is around to help out is a really big deal. So JR has mentioned multiple times about just texting people to figure out what's going on. And I can tell you, you know, some of that might be lost at bigger institutions, but knowing who you have there to help seems really important too. Any advice for those of us on the other end of the transfer line? Listen to the first trauma cast on rural trauma. <laughs> you know, as somebody that's calling the level one center, I would have to say that the biggest thing is, you know, we may be handing you a gigantic poop sandwich, but we know that. <laughs> We, we don't want to sound incompetent. By and large, I would have to say that we would love to be able to take care of the patient, but there's just times where we don't have those resources. You know, it's at one of our previous attempts at recording this, you know, Carrie and I were swapping stories of operating for that first time where, well, yeah, I, I need somebody to scrub with me. And, and then looking across the table and it's you and the scrub tech and the on-call PACU nurse who has scrubbed two other times, you know, and, and, and that's your person to scrub with as you're doing a colectomy or a splenectomy, um, doing a spleen and calling in the on-call OB-GYN surgeon who's trying to retract this BMI 50 belly and shooting death glares at you. You know, that's a different experience than I had when I was in training. Even as a chief resident, there's three other residents standing down the table ready to just do anything that they can possibly get their hands on. And so it's a completely different environment. Again, it's true general surgery. It's what I envisioned when I went into this. And you know, I don't see myself moving on from a level four center in, in anytime soon. And it really just comes down to the community and, and just being part of this community and a vital part of that community. We love working with you guys and we love any kind of feedback that we can get. Um, that's one of the, the biggest pieces of advice that I give to new attendings is the hardest adjustment for me becoming an attending is no longer having that feedback. You're on your own and nobody is there telling you that you're an idiot. Nobody is there telling you you're doing a great job. Nobody's there telling you, well, you could have done this better. You have to have that introspection to look at it and decide what could I have done better there? What can I do better here? What am I doing a good job of? And, and that was one of the hardest adjustments for me as a new attending. You can still have an academic mindset in these small rural communities, thus implementing whole blood, trying to figure out, does it make a difference? We've actually found that implementing whole blood saves money rather than using the component therapy we have. And so when you go to your hospital's you know, board of directors or whatever, and you say, hey, this is going to save for every time that we order a massive transfusion protocol, this whole blood saved us 860 bucks. You know, you get a lot quicker buy-in, unfortunately, than at some time at other academic places where we've tried to get whole blood. You know, Eric, what you're saying about making sure you get feedback and trying to figure it out. You know, one of one of my senior most partners, his son trained at LA County at the same time I was in Houston. So I call to operate with him all the time just because he's been doing this 35 years. Right. And I'm like, well, show me how you used to do this, you know, before you had staplers. Show me how you used to do that. Right. I'm like, come on, Lee. And then, you know, and the, the cool thing is you can take pictures and then somehow through 
some of my buddies, his son texts him and says, oh, I hear you're a pancreas surgeon after we did a distal pancreatectomy and splenectomy. And he's like, here I am, a 73-year-old surgeon, and my son thinks I'm a pancreas surgeon now. But, you know, I think in those small communities, the one thing that I've noticed differently is, you know, you can really impact the community itself. You know, we have a big problem with uh, penetrating violence in young African-American males, just telling them that there's a social worker that can talk to them if they have nightmares, just asking that question, things like that, that some academic centers have that they don't have in these rural communities, just saying, hey, there's access to these things. You know, just bringing something down like that may decrease recidivism. People in the community appreciate that. And like we have said, they appreciate not having to get transferred if we're willing to take care of uh, their issues and being able to, you know, have not have to drive. So I think I wouldn't discount the impact you can have in these communities. You know, I'm not publishing anywhere near the papers that I've done before, but when, when I have people sending me text messages or the amount of stuff that was brought to my office, that I didn't even know people cooked or made anymore, you know, makes a, makes a really big difference. If you're enjoying uh, listening to this conversation about uh, rural trauma and you know choosing a job, I'd like to encourage everybody to subscribe to the East CareerCast. It is a podcast dedicated to acute care surgeons and uh, their careers. It is a podcast that has been kind of rejuvenated over the past year, and it's lovely to listen to. You can listen to it wherever you get your trauma cast recordings as well. Well, I appreciate everyone giving their time to talk to us today. It's been really enjoyable. And if you haven't listened to our first rural trauma cast, you'll get to hear the perspective of surgeons at a level one trauma center. And then you can also look forward to the rural trauma toolkit that's going to be coming to the East website soon. In addition to the career cast, the online education committee also has the East Minutes, which discuss some quick clinical knowledge bombs in just a few minutes. So if you have time to check out some of our other resources, I encourage you to look at the East website. Thank you all for joining us today. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you, Lucy. It was fun. Yeah, thank you, guys. It was great. All right. Well, you guys have a great day. Thank you. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the EAST website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, network and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the EAST.